What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. You'll be hearing a lot more from me when I'm back in March. But for now, here's today's show. And thank you, Scott, and welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan. A milestone moment for the administration, the president, and maybe the nation. As phase one trade deal agreed to on December 13th, about to be signed. Trade, of course, has been a cornerstone of his economic agenda and a centerpiece of his campaign. All of this coming on the same day that the House will send articles of impeachment to the Senate. And we have not seen the text of the deal yet, but we know that it addresses IP protection, forced technology transfer, ag buying, as well as manufacturing purchases, financial services, and dispute resolution. Joining us now are Derek Scissors, Asia economist at the American Enterprise Institute, and Joel Trackman. He's professor of international law at Tufts Fletcher School. Professor Trackman, I will begin with you. The initial criticism of the deal, even though nobody had read it yet, was that it may not be strong enough on technology and IP protection. It appears there may be more in there than we believe. What would you like to see from the deal when you read it? What would make you assured this was a good deal for the United States? Since uh, 2001, when China joined the World Trade Organization, it's had lots of commitments on intellectual property protection, including a commitment not to require transfers of technology as a condition for investment. Uh, The compliance with that has not been good, uh, but it's been uh, enforced at the World Trade Organization to a a certain level. Uh, What you might see in this agreement is repeats of those commitments, maybe more specificity on some of those issues. I doubt that we'll see more specificity on how to enforce those things, uh, but presumably there will be a, a provision that says that if President Trump determines on his own that the uh, commitments are not being met, he can uh, put the tariffs back on. So, so that's what's hanging over the Chinese head. You know, Derek, uh, back in 2015, I believe it was, then President Obama had a deal in principle with China regarding cyber theft and cyber crime with China which China pretty much immediately then broke. Whatever deal is signed today, do you believe it will be enforced and enforceable? Uh, I have the advantage of actually having read the deal. The IP set chapter, chapter one, is a lot stronger than the tech transfer chapter. But I think both you and Joel have pointed to the real point, which is enforcement. And President Trump cares a lot about the trade balance. So when I look at the trade chapter and I don't see really strong enforcement, that doesn't bother me because I know he'll enforce that. I don't think he cares that much about IP, and I don't think we're okay, going to get Okay, Derek and Professor Trackman, we're going to jump in now because the actual signing of the Phase 1 trade deal is taking place in the White House right now.
And there we have President Trump signing the American side of the phase one trade deal. His counterpart, Vice Chairman Liu He, to his right. Some of the people in the room, you see Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, Stephen Schwarzman, Meg Gentile, the CEO of LNG producer Tellurian, who, by the way, is planning to join us at the end of this hour, assuming she's able to get out of that room. Um, Derek, you said that you had the ability and the privilege to read the document. Was there anything in there that stood out to you that was either perhaps stronger or weaker than the primary narrative around the deal that we have heard so far? Well... I don't think it's really possible to pin the Chinese down on tech transfer, which is chapter two and is very short. There's actually more text on dairy and infant formula than there is on tech transfer. Um, it's just hard for them to agree, to, to admit they've been coercing tech transfer and that they're now going to stop. So that's, that's an expected failure in the deal. Uh, I did not see, and I had to read it very quickly, and I'm not a lawyer, I did not see any independent enforcement mechanism laid out for the United States. There is a chapter on enforcement. It's mostly about consultations. Um, so maybe the enforcement mechanism is just implied. President Trump has applied tariffs before to China, and he will again if he doesn't like Chinese behavior. And do we know, Professor Trackman, what would be enforceable under this document? So much language in international trade, as you know, can be so broad as to, you know, sort of be the, the kitchen sink, if you will, around legality. What would you like to see for American companies to protect their IP? What kind of language do we need to see in this? The, the problem in many of these IP contexts is identifying clearly the uh, violation uh, and inducing the American companies to actually testify. They may fear retaliation. And so um, one of the problems with the tech transfer issue is that companies are, are reluctant to uh, say something except anonymously about what's going on. So it's, it's hard to know exactly how to do this. You know, this is not a new problem. This is not something that just arose. And uh, presidents before President Trump and trade advisors before uh, Lighthizer have tried to grapple with it. But, it, but it's a slippery thing to enforce. Uh, and this uh, will not be a formal agreement that you take to court. This will be, as Derek said, something that uh, Trump points to when he starts to put the tariffs back on. Yeah, and I think, you know, when we look at the moment right now, we just had the signing. They, they showed off the signatures in the document. There are handshakes all around, Derek. I mean, at least part of this. Forget about the substance of the document itself. Should we take some optimism, as the market appears to be doing, from the fact that they are in the room, they have signed the document, there are smiles, there are handshakes, the optics seem good. Yeah, I think the optics are good, and that, you know that's a reasonable interpretation, and they're going to remain good until we see trade data that says the Chinese aren't making those purchases. And I'm not saying that we will. I think the Chinese will make the purchases over the course of 2020. But I think the reason the market is having a positive reaction is President Trump ran against the trade deficit in a very big way in 2016, and he needed to make progress on it. This progress is a lot less risky than progress through just applying U.S. tariffs. So we're seeing on paper the president being happy with the China situation, which means we don't get the possibility of U.S.-China escalation. It may not last. But I think it will, and I think there's reason to be optimistic, at least for the next few months. And then, Professor, what would you like to see happen next? 
Well, I, I think that this looks like a, a refusal to engage in decoupling. So, so it, it is an optimistic moment. Uh, phase two uh, may come along. It will, um, if it happens, uh, address uh, state-owned enterprises and subsidies, some of the structural tougher issues that would cause reform in China. And uh, I think the Chinese side is happy to engage in strategic patience and uh, jolly the United States along for, you know, another six months, maybe to the election or, or past the election, and, uh, and then hope that some of these things pass over and uh, they don't have to uh, engage in, in deep structural reform. Do you think that China, Professor, is capable of deep structural reform? Uh, I, I don't think so at this moment, but uh, I know that the United States is seeking this. And, you know, just earlier this week, the United States, Japan and the European Union said we want to see greater disciplines of uh, the kinds of subsidies that China uses. And so that, that also is, in my mind, a positive sign that the United States is turning to its allies to try to uh, address China in, in a more deliberate way. You know, and finally, Derek, I'll ask you this. I mean, because you're there in in Washington. I mean, even by Washington standards, which can get a little bit crazy, this is a bizarre day. I mean, we have this trade deal signed, the president taking a victory lap, Republicans taking a victory lap. And on the other side, you've got Democrats sending the articles of impeachment to the Senate. They're sort of taking their own sort of not impeachment victory lap, but they're touting their side of the story. Within a two-hour period, we've signed a trade deal And we've talked about sending the articles to the Senate and a trial there. Even by your standards, this has got to be an historic and unusual day. Well, by my personal standards, it's perfectly normal. Um, yeah, look, the, I'll focus on what I know, which is that the president made promises about the trade deficit, saying it was theft, saying it was the greatest theft in history. And he is going to run, if this works, in 2020 on promises made, promises kept. I told you I could cut the trade deficit, and I did, if it works. And that's going to be a weapon he'll use against the critics, uh, including people calling for his impeachment. I'm not saying it's, a, it's right. I'm saying as a matter of making a political mm-hmm. promise, this event strengthens the president's hand against people wanting to impeach him, even though they want to impeach him for completely different reasons. All right, Derek Scissors and Joel Trackman. Gentlemen, appreciate it. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Great insight. Thanks. All right. Now that the signing is over, we can get to Kayla Tausche, who was in the room. She witnessed the signing. She was there. And Kayla, I mean, what was it like to be in the room? There's a lot of smiles and handshakes behind you. There were a lot of smiles and handshakes, at least from the U.S. side, Brian. As the East Room breaks down here and we try to synthesize what we just witnessed, what is very clear is the difference in tenor between the U.S. and the Chinese approach to this deal. You had President Trump talking for uh, more than an hour, uh, unscripted introductions of lawmakers and industry leaders who are poised to benefit from this deal. Administration officials calling this a watershed moment for economic relations between the U.S. and and China. You even had the vice president saying, today the change begins, this resetting of the U.S.-China relationship. But President Trump made it very clear that these are the beginning of talks, not the end. Here's what he said about what happens to tariffs and where talks go from here.
President Trump said that uh, there would be a discussion of tariffs when phase two negotiations began. He didn't give any clarity over exactly when he would be heading to Beijing and when those discussions would begin. Uh, but certainly in terms of when it would happen, it is likely to happen after this deal goes into effect, which is 30 days from now. Earlier today, the top trade official here in the U.S., Ambassador Robert Lighthizer, spoke to reporters and acknowledged that this is not a perfect agreement. It's not an ideal agreement for an administration that was trying to get everything but the kitchen sink. But he said it does address the core commitments. It does have real teeth. It is enforceable, but it will depend on China wanting to enforce it. China, for its part, the vice premier reading a letter from President Xi and said they're prepared to work together, but the U.S. needs to treat Chinese companies fairly. Brian? You know, Kayla, this has really been an 18-month, nearly nonstop journey, not only for the U.S. and Chinese teams, but for you and our CNBC team as well. Is there any indication, and I'm sorry to do this to you, Kayla, of the next steps? Do we pick back up tomorrow talking about phase two, or do we get some kind of a, a trade truce, a bit of a break before we move on to the next round of discussions? Well, Ambassador Lighthizer said there would be no escalation, no retaliation, so long as the two countries are still engaging in good faith. The deal that was signed today will go into effect 30 days from today. And Lighthizer says at some point this spring, the U.S. will be able to get a read as to whether and to what extent China is actually abiding by terms of the deal. That will help to outline exactly what this enforcement mechanism looks like, whether it's effective, and when phase two talks would be scheduled for, whether they would be appropriate at that time. So we're looking at at least a couple months, Brian, before the U.S. side gets a sense of where things will go, whether phase two could ramp up at that point, and what this tariff denouement would look like if it's appropriate to do so at that time. All right, Kayla Tausche, literally in the room, and we appreciate your on-the-ground and excellent coverage, not only today, Kayla, but for the last year and a half. Thank you very much. All right, well, that trade deal has investors cheering today as we charge toward record highs once again. Bob Pisani at the New York Stock Exchange. We can't, Bob, attribute all of this to trade because the market was up the last couple of months. We've got the Fed, of course, their balance sheet expansion, buybacks, yeah. just general optimism. But it's kind of the, the trade cherry on top, if you will. Yeah. It is an important moment, a little bit of a sigh of relief. We finally did actually get a deal they signed here. Uh, a little bit of sell on the news, though, Brian. In the last 20 minutes, uh, we've been down. J.P. Morgan, Intel, Caterpillar selling off. The big issue is, can we close over 29,000 on the Dow? That's there. United Health, big help today on the Dow Jones Dust Travel, they beat on the earnings expectations. The question is, what's next, guys? Uh, is it time for a breather right now? That's sort of the main question down here. We factored in a trade truce. We factored in a neutral Fed. We factored in a strong consumer and no recession. In 2020, and we're even factoring in the possibility of a global bottom in the economy. Still a little bit of a controversy on that, but look at that. Those are the four issues that move the market. Less uncertainty, no wonder the market's at new high. And now the question is will this improve the tone of earnings commentary? We need that to happen because the numbers keep coming down for 2020. Q4 is doing a little bit better. Let me just show you the financial earnings reports today. BlackRock, new high there. That was an absolute home run, out of the ballpark home run. Bank of America, that was a little bit of a beat. You see that selling off. Goldman was confusing. There's a litigation charge in there, uh, but that stock's trading up. U.S. Bank Corp, uh, about in line, but uh, again, a little bit of confusion there. I'm figuring out the bottom line. PNC was a beat, but you see, even with the beats, these stocks have had nice run-ups and are selling off a little bit today. One thing I want to point out, BlackRock, an absolute asset 
asset gathering monster. Hard to describe this company. Seven and a half billion dollars, excuse me, trillion dollars in assets under management. One of the biggest ones that are out there. And more importantly, this inflows keep coming into the company. Seventy five billion in inflows from uh, into the iShares ETF portfolio. And to give you a sense how big these companies are becoming, the big just keep getting bigger here. iShares is 40 percent of the ETF market, over four trillion dollars. Five companies are essentially 90 percent of the whole ETF market. Brian, this is what I mean when I say they just keep getting bigger and everybody else is 150 ETF providers basically is getting the crumbs from the top five. That is just that is an incredible number, an incredible stat, incredible inflows. And by the way, something we're going to talk about, Bob, in a couple of minutes. Bob Pisani, thank you very much, friend. All right. We are just getting started here on a very busy exchange. Here's what else is coming up. Coming up, passive is king. New numbers show investors are flocking to ETFs at a huge pace. Should we be worried? Plus, Jim Cramer sits down with the CEO of Stitch Fix and not hitting the mark. Peloton isn't a fad. And the DOJ meets with the NCAA. It's all coming up on The Exchange. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. All right, welcome back. Well, we may be off our highs of the day, but stocks overall are rallying again to yet new records. This presumably on the back of the trade deal signing, as well as continued momentum for the last couple of weeks. It's also a big boost for BlackRock. You heard Bob talk about it a bit. The asset manager posting huge numbers for the fourth quarter, including an 81% increase in new money flowing into its iShares ETFs. That, my friends, is more than $75 billion. But it does raise a question. Are investors headed for a potential crash by pumping too much cash into these passive investments? Joining us now, Margie Patel, Managing Director for Wells Fargo Asset Management, and Wasif Latifi is Head of Investments for Victory Shares and Solutions. And Wasif, I want to start with you. You have a note out here. It says the worm has turned. The spread between the top 100, or excuse me, top 10, yeah. and bottom 490 stocks in the S&P 500 has never been wider. The Big Ten are controlling everything. It's great when it's working. What happens when investors eventually stop buying those stocks? Well, when that happens, the overall market, given their weight, is going to feel the impact. And those stocks are going to decline. How much? Well, it depends on what the decline is. But given the weight that they have, the rally that they've seen, that's going to be a big impact. And I think that's why having a risk-weighted approach instead of a market capitalization approach is a better way of going about it, which is what we do in our ETFs, like CFA, for example, where it's all risk-weighted. It's based on what is the volatility of a stock, not necessarily what is the weight of a stock in an index, because that's just an arbitrary, non-fundamental-based way of putting money in. Because, Margie, as everybody piles into these names by their size, I think Apple itself is 5%. I think it's the top five stocks are 
17 to 18 percent of the S&P 500. The index was ostensibly created so that would not happen. Does the market in some ways feel like a, a bowling ball stacked on top of a pencil? Uh, no, I don't think so. And I think the reason is that uh, really what the growth in those large cap stocks are as a percent of the market reflects their fundamental success in growing. Uh, since the financial crisis, the large capitalization stocks with secular growth trends have outperformed in sales, earnings, every metric and the stock prices. So I think it just reflects the reality. And I don't see any real um, peril in the marketplace because of these overweightings. Every market cycle we've had. We've had a handful of stocks that have taken a disproportionate percentage of the capitalization of the market. So this is just uh, typical, really. Sure, Margie. No, is it typical? Because the data shows we've never had this kind of market structure. We've had times of imbalance agreed, 1999, 2007, all those years. But I don't think it's been this extreme, no? Well, it is a little higher, but I would say, too, if you look at the way growth trends in the economy in the U.S. and globally has been, the strong, the big have kept getting bigger. And so you do have uh, the reality that bigger companies gather more strength, gather more momentum and keep taking more and more share in their business. So I think that's what the ETF trend really reflects is the the economic reality underlying the growth, the so-called disproportionate share. When you look at the growth characteristics, say, of Apple, it's uh, really head and shoulders mm-hmm. above most of the other companies you compare it to. So, therefore, it should have a bigger weight. The one thing I do wonder, though, is, Wasif, is, is whether or not companies are, good companies are being ignored. Ignored yeah. by the market because the analyst community is falling apart due to MIFID. We don't have much sell-side work. We don't have many small caps getting attention. The big caps are just keep getting bought in these ETFs. Are there a lot of really great smaller cap companies that are just being left in the dust because of the structure? We think it is, especially if, if it's going through this ETF structure where it's all capitalization-based, where 50%, the top 50 stocks, for example, in the, in the top 500 names, make up 50% of the weight of an index. So the bottom 450 names, they're generally getting ignored because they don't have the kind of weight that they would reward the fundamental growth And they probably like it because their stocks are going up as the index goes up because people are putting money into Apple. But if and when people start selling Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, whatever, those stocks, stocks, no matter what their fundamental earnings are, are going to go down. It it doesn't matter. They're going to go down, even though they have nothing to do with it. The price to earnings ratio and the valuations are telling us that the expectations are very, very high for these stocks. And any disappointment will push them lower. And that's why having an equal risk-weighted approach that we have, for example, in CFA, makes a really big impact because then you allocate according to the companies that you're talking about, the ones that are are getting ignored. We're going to have a healthy allocation to those as well. Well, listen, I think this is an important, very important market discussion on market structure. Appreciate you both sides, the views, and appreciate coming in. Wasif and Margie, thank you very much. All right, on deck. Target, off target. Sales, missing the mark. We examine what went wrong for one of America's hottest stocks. Plus, a big night here on CNBC, the series premiere of our hot real estate show, Listing Impossible, tonight, 10 o'clock Eastern Time. And that show star is going to join us live on set next. And as a reminder, you can always watch us live while you're on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange, back in two minutes. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. 
or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash. Burgers and fries, off-target, and video games topping your single stocks to watch right now. First up, Shake Shack. Shares are up nicely. Goldman Sachs talking them up. The bank getting more comfortable with Shake Shack's menu innovation, which it sees helping comps beat expectations this year. Next, Target and Toys. Target's big holiday sales miss also taking down shares of Hasbro and Mattel. Target said that same-store sales for toys were flat during the holiday season. Remember, earlier this month, Stiefel writing to clients that Mattel sales were flat across Amazon websites that it tracked. And completing the hat trick, Zynga hitting its highest level since 2012. KeyBank resuming coverage on the stock with an overweight. This on a strong portfolio, sustainable and proven brands, and a deep pipeline that should supplement the growth over the next couple of years. We should note, though, Zynga investors, it is still down below its 2011 IPO price of $10 per share, still the highest since 2012. Well, the housing market overall is off to a strong start to the year as home buyer demand hitting its highest level in more than a decade. But some luxury homes in California have been floundering on the market, some for years. And that's where real estate agent and star of CNBC's brand new show, Listing Impossible, Aaron Kerman comes in. He says these millionaires need to change their perspective when it comes to selling a home. Home is what people are really emotionally attached to. So when it doesn't sell, they're stressed, upset, disappointed. Good to meet you. Good to meet you too, Renata Kaya. I do my best to try to teach them that while this is emotional and I get it, look at this like a business. All right, so let's bring in now the star of this new show, Aaron Kerman, 10 o'clock tonight. We look forward to it. Listen, congratulations, by the way. Thanks so much. Great to have you on. Thanks. Okay, so I assume most of these millionaire owners, and I assume they are because they got million-dollar homes, are pretty smart people, business savvy. What's the biggest mistake that you see them make trying to sell their homes? They make so many mistakes. It's shocking. <laughs> and, and these people are so successful at what they do and so wealthy. I'm shocked by them. But a lot of times it's overpricing houses. Uh, it's thinking that they have the best house on the best street and overprice it by double. Bad design, uh, bad taste, attachment. There's so many different issues. Well, listen, smart, successful people are great. They're smart and successful. But they also might, might have just a sliver of ego where they're saying, Aaron, I know you're, let me tell you how it is. How do you break through that? Well, it's never just a sliver. Ego I'm is, trying to be nice. Uh, yeah. Our ego is our biggest issue on our show and in, in general. Um, a lot of our sellers really think that they're right. They think that their decisions are correct. And even when the market doesn't speak to them in the way, they still defend them. And so on our show, you'll see me just telling the truth, cutting, cutting it, you know, telling it like it is. That's and hard. That's hard. It is. And oftentimes they don't like to hear it. Uh, the reactions that you'll see sometimes is anger, disappointment. I've been kicked out of people's houses 
Uh, these are. Have the, you really? Oh yeah. I mean, I, I had a, a, a seller on the show that said, "If you're going to continue to do this, get out of my house." And it's not just the show. It's what happens to us on a daily basis. It, it is true. And we all know real estate agents. We have friends or family they are doing on whatever level it is, condos to $20 million homes like you do, Aaron. And you ever sometimes want to give advice? Sometimes you have to walk away. Even though it's a commission you may be losing, Just it's not worth your time and hassle, is it? I would say 60% of the time, I walk away. So That much? That much. Seller expectation is always just, everyone has a different impression of what value is and and the way they want to see their house go. And I have to walk away from a lot of business because our time is our money. And their time is their money. If you're dealing with a seller who's unwilling to make changes and every day they're calling you and it's a year, you're losing business because you're dealing with this needy seller. Correct. And And that show, right? 100%. You know, and our philosophy is if one door closes, another one opens. And we like to make sure that we have the right doors open and if a seller is not realistic and um, mm-hmm. really understands the market and our version of where they need to go, we oftentimes okay. walk away. Okay, don't give too much away because we're going to watch it tonight, 10 o'clock Eastern time. But we saw a bit of a clip. The house looked kind of modern, a little industrial chic. Maybe I'm just going on what I saw. I've not seen it. Um, tell us a little bit about what we're going to see tonight. So tonight you're going to see a divorcee, and this house was her divorce settlement. It was all she had. Uh, it languished on the so market. So it's emotional. She's tied oh, to this. Tied. This was, this was her life savings in this house. And it was on the market for three years at a price that the market just was not accepting. And so you'll see us go in, tell, it, tell her like it is. We really had to cut the price tremendously. We had to restage it. And we had to do a lot to get that house sold. But it, but it sold. You gave away a little bit. She got, she got it sold. You got it sold. Uh, I would say we got it sold. Uh, she was one of the sellers who really listened to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, she would glare at me and give me dirty looks, but she obviously <laughs> listened. And um, it was a, it was a well, well, the audience. Don't give it see, away. We'll look forward to it tonight. She, appreciate you coming on, Aaron Kerman, Listing Impossible, CNBC tonight, 10 p.m. Eastern time. Sounds good. Homes are emotion. It's a passionate thing. Good luck to it. We'll Thanks see you soon, Aaron. Take care. All right. Let's now get a news update with Sue Herrera. Thank you very much, Brian. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. Vladimir Putin wants to make sweeping changes to Russia's constitution and political system, allowing him to stay in power longer. Russia's prime minister and government resigned as part of today's announcement. Putin is supposed to leave office in 2024. T-Mobile and Sprint executives arrived at Manhattan Federal Court today ahead of closing arguments in their merger trial. A group of states are suing to block the proposed $26 billion deal over pricing concerns. Senate Democrats have the votes needed to limit President Trump's war powers after Republicans Susan Collins of Maine and Todd Young of Indiana came out in support of the resolution. It would require Trump to seek congressional authorization for further military action against Iran. And the FDA is warning a weight loss drug approved in 2012 may be linked to cancer. The agency is reviewing trial results associated with the drug Belvique, which showed a potentially increased risk of cancer to patients. You are up to date. That's the news update this hour. Brian, back to you. All right, Sue Herrera, thank you very much. Well, the final vote is in to send the two articles of impeachment to the Senate. Elon Moy joining us now with the numbers and the final count. Elon. Well, Brian, the House does have the votes it needs to send those two articles of impeachment over to the Senate, as well as name the seven managers who will serve as the prosecutors in the upcoming trial. That vote is still open. Currently, the tally is 228 to 193. 
clearly along party lines here. Only one Democrat so far has voted against this resolution. Very likely that is Colin Peterson of Minnesota, who had voted against the articles of impeachment themselves. One independent, Justin Amash, has voted with the Democrats to send those uh, articles of impeachment on over to the Senate. Once this is officially passed, the next step in the process is for House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to sign the resolution and then for the House managers to physically walk the articles across the Capitol and hand deliver them over to the Senate. We expect that ceremony to take place at about 5 p.m. And Brian, then the ball will officially be in the Senate's court. Back over to you. Okay, so a few more hours to go yet in the day and that ceremonial walking, physical walking to the Senate. Alon Moy, thank you very much. We'll see you soon. All right. All right, we got a lot more coming up on Worldwide Exchange. The markets, by the way, are on the exchange. On the exchange, the markets at all-time highs, a little bit off their highs. We got a busy day in D.C., a phase one trade deal being signed. We've got these articles of impeachment. The Dow is up 110 points. The exchange, as always, seen worldwide. And we're back after this. And welcome back to The Exchange. While Target's holiday sales may have missed the mark, things are looking up for another retailer, albeit a unique one. That is Stitch Fix. The online subscription service saw revenue grow 21% in the first quarter. And while shares are down a little bit today, Stitch Fix up nearly 20% in the past three months. Our own Jim Cramer sat down with CEO Katrina Lake just moments ago to talk about how it is disrupting the retail space. Listen. We have a huge business, and we have 3 million clients out there. And really what is differentiated about us versus other apparel retailers is we are solving the paradox of choice and really figuring out what is right for you, uniquely you, individually. And so as an example, jeans. Like, you know, nobody wants to be trying on dozens of pairs of jeans. And online, nobody wants to search through literally a million pairs of jeans to try to figure out what are the right ones for you. And a model like ours is able to use data science to be able to understand what is it about you, what is about the pair of jeans and then match you really smartly with jeans that are going to fit you. So with us, we ship product to your home. You let us know who you are, what you're looking for. We'll ship product to your home. You can try things on at your home. It's a very effective and efficient way to be able to find clothes that you love. All right. And Jim Kramer joins us now. And, and Jim, I mean, this is a fascinating company. On one hand, it's a retailer. On the other hand, it's not. But here's my most important question. Are there a name for people addicted to the service? Are they stitchers? Are they Fixers. Are you a fixer, Jim? Fixer. Fixer. Am I a fixer? Uh, well, I mean, I, I subscribe to the site, I, but I am, you know, frankly, I'm not the core audience, uh, in part because you and I both know we have someone who helps us dress us. And when you have someone who helps dress you, you don't necessarily need stitch fix. You certainly don't. What you really do need, though, if you're uh, trying to figure out what to put on, and there are so many different choices, as Katrina said, you don't have the time to be able to deal with it, and you need someone who's better at it than you. You need a stylist, and you need to also be directed by algorithm. And that's what this does. And by the way, Brian, we left out. It makes money. It's a company that makes money. I find that to be uh, joyful. You know, it's an interesting that it does make money because having gotten some boxes, you always like you. You always every time you talk about a company, you want to at least experience a little bit what they do. What exactly do they do? So you'll get basically four or five things in a box every month. You try them on. You can send some back. I would imagine that making sure that they, they, they keep as much as possible when they send it is the key to this business's success. 
Well, look, I mean, I think they know what you want more than you know what you want. So therefore, returns will be small. By the way, obviously, inventory, not much of an issue versus, say, a traditional department store, of course. Uh, Does it end up in a landfill? No, because you choose it yourself. High quality. So, I mean, it's got a lot of the uh, I don't want to say boxes checked because that just is is too so-called cerebral. But it does identify with what a lot of younger people care about, sustainability, uh, trying to get it right, not spending a lot of time on it doing it mobile, doing it at home. These are all the things that younger people want. Look, I went to Lord and Taylor when I was growing up. You know, Macy's. There are people still go to Macy's, but you want that younger person because they're going to be with you for life. What do you think in your in your discussions about the company or your conversations with Ms. Lake that the street has not necessarily figured out about this company yet, Jim? Oh, that's a great question. I think what people haven't figured out, Brian, is that you can have growth and profitability, but it may not be the kind of growth that you want. I mean, look, there's a lot of companies out here growing 50, 40, 50, 60 percent, but they're not making any money. So if they hit a pothole, you're going to have a stock that's cut in half. This is a company that is buttressed by the fact that they do make money. Uh, they've got good revenue growth. They've got a series of new different uh, initiatives that I think are going to pay off. So I, th- I think it's just a question of uh, sponsorship. They don't have the sponsorship right now of, uh, of uh, Callan, of Oliver Chen. They don't have Matthew Boss, J.P. Morgan. They're not going to be at the J.P. Morgan retail conference, that I can tell. That's where you get the sponsorship. That's where you get the big institutions. They need to do that. Uh, they're busy running the business. They don't need necessarily for me to curate what their stock should do. But that's how you get that exposure. Hey, quickly, Jim, I want to ask about Target. I mean, everybody was talking up Target. I mean, everywhere you go, whether it's Oliver Chen, you just mentioned the analyst, or, or you know, the, you or the guys on halftime, that Brian Cornell has done yeah, a great well. a great job, by the way. Do you think the street's being a little too tough on Target today, given, I mean, given what they've seen no, from the quarter? It, when they... Now, when they said they're going to do, they were doing five, six, and they thought they'd do very well. So the stock got bid up 12 bucks. So it's going to give some of that back. Look, I've got to tell you, I didn't know that there's an Achilles heel there. And the Achilles heel is hard good electronics uh, home, because in the end, we still want to go to Amazon for those. We're not going to get the lowest price at Target. I also think it was an Apple Christmas. Uh, the 11 t- took the world by storm and it cost a lot of money, but it was a letdown. Now, how do I know it's a letdown? Because Brian said it. And I know that he's probably just steamed at himself right now, which means he'll fix it. Well, and, and also, you're not going to buy an Apple 11 phone every quarter, so that they might have that in, in their corner. Uh, Jim, final comment. Of course, I know you probably talk about it on Mad Money as well tonight about this, this trade deal. Uh, how much of today's market gain do you think is tied to that deal? I saw your great interview with your, with your friend and former colleague, by the way, Larry Kudlow, this morning. But the market's also right. been in a positive momentum mode as well. So how much of this well, is trade? We haven't, we haven't put... The, we're going to put pen to paper and realize that there's a lot more to this trade deal. Uh, I thought that, I don't know, what was that, the Fortune 50 that uh, the president mentioned? There's a lot of companies there. The, the CEOs have been on uh, my show, and I have to believe that they're not there just for show. I think that they actually are going to make more money than people realize. Uh, Larry was my partner for many years. Uh, Larry's right when he says, listen, this is a much bigger deal than people think. I know to go with Larry, even if people just say, oh, come on, he's always an optimist. He's also a person who understands the economy. He understands companies. People are going to make a lot of money and shareholders can make a lot of money. What, quickly, what I loved about the interview, too, and I hadn't heard this before, Jim, was when Larry talked about how they get complaints from Chinese companies who are complaining about other Chinese companies that the Chinese, I think Larry said, are stealing from themselves and they could use our help in that. They have uh, the communists are rapacious capitalists. 
And they are ca- zero sum capitalists to some degree. Uh, I know it seems odd that the Communist Party, the Communist Party to me felt like the pajama party. Today. Boy, did they ever lose in this deal? But the president was quite gracious. Lyra was quite gracious. But I think that they're a uh, more of a paper tiger than people realize. Hey, Brian, where are all the people who said that they were the that they're playing the long game? If that's the long game, I don't want any part of their game. It was like a one pitch. I would long play game. a short game. A one short inning game better game. than a long game. We got a deal. Yeah, exactly. We got a deal. We got new records. We got Stitch Fix on with you tonight on Mad Money. And we got you on the exchange, Jim. It's a win, 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 win. We'll see you tonight, Jim. Thank you very much. I love talking to you, Brian. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Jim. And me as well. All right. So catch that. Katrina Lake tonight. Mad Money, 6 p.m. Eastern time. Of course, with Jim, he is still out west. And you're going to want to tune in tomorrow. This is a big one. Jim said it yesterday. It took 10 years. I don't think he was actually kidding on that number, by the way, to get this. He's going to travel up to Seattle. He may be there now. Sit down with Satya Nadella, the man who, I think it's fair to say, reinvented Microsoft, took it to a trillion dollars. Big day for Mad, for Jim, for Microsoft. Satya Nadella, big exclusive with Jim tomorrow. All right, coming up. China agreeing to buy more energy from the United States as part of that deal. And your next guest was in that room. Actually got a call out from the president. Meg Gentle, CEO of Tellurian, the LNG provider, will join us from D.C. next Check this out. Goldman Sachs sold all of its shares of Uber in the fourth quarter of last year. That's according to a source with direct knowledge of the move. Goldman reported earnings earlier today, missing on the number, but handily beating on revenue, likely helped by the sale of those Uber shares. It appears the Uber underwriter sold out at its earliest opportunity as the post-IPO lockup period ended in early November. Goldman reportedly had owned about 10 million shares. CFO Stephen Schur said on the conference call that Goldman took advantage of harvesting opportunities in the quarter by selling some of its holdings. Shares of Uber are reversing. Now, they're actually up fractionally, but they were down. Goldman Sachs out of Uber. All right, coming up. The first phase of the Trade One phase deal is done. Trade deal is done, and China will be buying more oil and gas from the U.S. as part of it. Coming up, we'll speak with LNG Company CEO Meg Gentle of Tellurian, who was in the room and even got a shout-out from the president. That's next. All right, the U.S. and China signing the long-awaited phase one part of the trade deal, which includes the purchase of more than $50 billion worth of energy products over the next couple of years. Let's talk about it. We're joined by Meg Gentle. She is president and CEO of Tellurian LNG Company. She was at the signing ceremony. Meg, it's great to have you on from the White House. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, You've obviously seen the deal, or at least the parts of the deal, I'm sure, that matter to you, Tellurian, and the U.S. LNG and gas industry. What does it mean for your company and the U.S. energy complex in general? Brian, this is big. This is big for America, big for China, and big for energy. And I'm so pleased that the president recognizes the strategic importance of energy in the overall China-U.S. trade relationship. When we think about what it means, what it's going to mean for trade, um, we're going to sell a lot of natural gas. And, in fact, we produce more and more natural gas in this country every day. So much so that we're oversupplied in natural gas and we're even wasting some of it. We must increase our exports of natural gas and we're on path to become the largest worldwide exporter of liquefied natural gas, as you know, LNG. 
and we'll be exporting LNG from the Driftwood LNG terminal. So we're going to deliver natural gas to the world. We're going to deliver 50,000 jobs to the American people, and we're going to deliver the largest construction project in the U.S. when we start this year. Yeah, and China has a choice. I mean, we are on way to becoming, as you said, Meg, the largest liquefied natural gas exporter in the world. Amazing, considering that we were a gas, pretty much a gas importer 20 years ago. But China has a choice. They can go to Qatar. That's the world's single largest producer of LNG at the moment. They have other options. What does this deal do to ensure U.S. companies, U.S. workers, the U.S. industry thrives? The good news, Brian, is that now we're becoming the low-cost producer. We know that uh, we can put LNG into the vessel on the water for $3.50 an MMBTU and deliver that to Europe for about $4.50 and to Asia for about $5.50. This makes the U.S. and the U.S. worker competitive against all of those other places, uh, Qatar, Russia, Australia. China is about to be the largest importer. We should be the largest exporter. So there's a trade deal in there. Yeah, tied together by gas, I guess. And what's funny is that it's not funny, I suppose, Meg, is that literally Russia and Europe are being tied together by the Nord Stream 2 expansion. That's a pipeline that goes from Russia to Germany. The sort of the umbilical cord for gas there. Does that Russia swing toward Western Europe sort of imply that China and the U.S., whatever else our differences, will need each other long term from an energy perspective? Brian, we're going to be tied for a long time on so many different parts of our economy. So the natural tie on energy bolsters not only the U.S. economy, but also the Chinese economy, the Chinese household, and protects the environment with clean air and lower CO2. I think that's Stephen Schwartzman of Blackstone behind you, if I'm not sure. I think he's, yeah, he's walking by. He's, can you ask him if he's going to invest in LNG? I'm kidding, Meg. Don't worry about it. My, my <laughs> old friend Steve... We've done a lot of LNG plants together, Mr. Schwartzman and I. Well, he's right there over your left hand. Don't turn now. Stay focused on us, Meg. But he just walked by. I think he's going to come up on CNBC here in a few minutes. Overall, what was the mood? Obviously, a lot of CEOs that were in the room, different, disparate industries. What's the takeaway? So much energy there, Brian, and not only not only energy companies, but uh, from across all of the sectors. I think there were roughly 200 CEOs. Uh, that represent really the future prosperity of the U.S.-China trade relationship. All right, Meg Gentle, President and CEO of Tellurian, the ticker T-E-L-L, and we appreciate you telling us what exactly happened today. Good luck. Thanks for joining us from the White House, and congratulations for being there, Meg. Thank you. All right, so let's take a look, closer look at these markets if we can, because what a day this is. Just to recap, if you're just joining us, maybe you're in Hawaii and you are waking up. The Dow, new records all across the board. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.